Well, we, we are uh, now, last week we did our introduction to the cultural study of against the culture, for the culture, and now we're jumping into our first major topic, which is the issue of abortion. Uh, my guess is that we're probably all going to be largely on the same page in terms of what we think about this issue, but uh, it doesn't stop us from wanting to think critically and biblically about what is being said around us in our culture on these things. And so, if it's all right, I'm just going to th- throw us into the deep end of the pool right at the beginning, okay? And, and Ian helped me set this up, so I, I think I can show video clips. I'm, at least it was working earlier uh, on the screen. So this right here is the Morning Joe on MSNBC. Uh, Joe Scarborough on the right there. It's so funny. I was showing a clip where I was mentioning him uh, a, a couple years ago, and one of my students said, my mom used to date him. <laughs> and I said, there's no way that's true. And so we con- someone texted the mom, you know, and said, is this true? Did, did you date Joe Scarborough? Yeah, apparently in college, one of my students' moms dated him for a while, and he wanted to take the relationship all the way, and she said no, which she saved herself some trouble because this is his third marriage. He's married to that lady there, third marriage, and he's, he loosely claims to be a Christian. He grew up Baptist, and um, he, he will have pastors on at different times on his show, but we're just going to jump straight into the middle of a thought here, and then we're going to stop and back up and talk about what's going on. So how do we respond to comments like this that we see on the media all the time? Here we go. Of the New Testament, where Jesus talks about taking care of Hang the on, needy. Let me rewind taking here. Taking care, just say, as a Southern Baptist that wow. grew up reading the Bible, maybe a backslidden Baptist, but I still know the Bible. Jesus never once talked about abortion, never once. And it was happening back in ancient times. It was happening during his time. Never once mentioned it. And for people perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ down to one issue, it's heresy. Go, if you don't believe me, if that makes you angry, why don't you do something you haven't done in a long time? Open the Bible, open the New Testament, read the red letters. You won't see it there. And yet there are people who are using Jesus as a shield to make 10-year-old rape girls go through a living and breathing hell here on earth. They've also conveniently overlooked the parts of the New Testament where Jesus talks about taking care of the needy, taking care of those who are helpless, who live a hopeless life, because they believe These state legislators believe that life begins at fertilization and ends at childbirth. Okay, we've probably all heard some version of that, right? Haven't we heard those kinds of things? Usually what happens when this issue comes up, immediately what happens is we, someone brings up the most brutal, agonizing story you can possibly think of. In this case, a story you may have seen in the news a couple of months ago. Our current president mentioned it in a speech as well. I think a 10-year-old girl maybe in Ohio was raped and somehow became pregnant. And the question was, okay, are we telling this girl that she has to carry this child to full term? She's a 10-year-old victim of rape. Like, how awful do you have to be as a human being to be totally pro-life from conception of birth in a situation like that? Now, let's all stop for a moment, because what's already happening is people are beginning to play on the emotion first. Does anyone in this room think that what happened to that girl is completely fine? Every one of us feels absolutely heartbroken when you read the story about what happened. No one feels good about what happened. The question is, we got to stop back up and reframe the issue in a larger context. So I want to start with a comment, and then I want, to, I want to hear what you guys would say about this. There's a guy named Scott Klusendorf, who is a phenomenal pro-life speaker. If you go on YouTube, you can look up, for instance, I, I watched this debate, Scott Klusendorf versus Nadine Strassen, who's a law professor at New York University. It's like a two-hour debate on YouTube. It's really good. They go back and forth for the whole time. And Scott Klusendorf begins the debate by saying this, imagine my five-year-old son, I don't really have to imagine this, I guess, but imagine your five-year-old son walks up behind you when you're cleaning the dishes at the kitchen sink, and your five-year-old son says, hey, dad, hey, mom, can I kill this? He said, well, what's the obvious question you've got to answer before you can say yes or no? What is it that you're about to kill, right? Isn't that going to change how you answer the question? Can I kill this? Well, you've got to know what the thing is before you can answer the question of whether or not it would be right to kill it. So here's what I I want to begin the whole conversation, and this is where it's so easy to get sidetracked in comments like you're hearing from Joe Scarborough. Here's the whole question. From the very beginning of the conversation, what is the status of the unborn human being? I'm, I'm answering my own question there. What's the status of the unborn? And how you answer that question 
the dominoes fall for everything else that you could think of on the whole abortion issue. Because either we are dealing with a human being, we would say, obviously, as Christians, made in God's image, which is true, or you're talking about a clump of cells, some pre-human thing that is there in the mother's womb that's maybe part of the mother's body, uh, that the, the woman in that case has the right to have her tonsils removed. She has the right to have her wisdom teeth removed. She has the right to have an appendectomy. You know, if she has appendicitis, she can have her appendix removed. And if she doesn't want this clump of cells, she can have it removed as well. So the, the question before you get anywhere in this discussion is, what, how do we answer the question, who is the unborn? What is the unborn? Some thoughts or reflections on this opening comment? Well, I think Scripture is overwhelmingly clear in answering that. Um, the, the unborn, I mean, I, I don't even want to use the language that's typically used. It is a baby, a human being, growing in the mother's womb. Um, you know, God said, Genesis 1, I made man in my image, after my likeness. Genesis 9, after the flood, what does God say? He institutes capital punishment for one major thing. What is that? It's murdering another human being. Um, if, you know, if man sheds another man's blood, by man shall that man's blood be shed. That is God's divine decree for humanity that if we murder, if we kill an innocent human being, we take the life of an innocent human, we, human being, guess what? The death penalty is what comes. And so um, from, from the very moment, as we're going to see from the very moment of conception till the, till the last breath is breathed in a, in, a, in a person, we're talking about a full human being fully bearing the image of God, fully bearing the likeness of God, um, and containing because of that or, or having because of that all the rights, and I'm using common language, rights, privileges, protections that is afforded to any full-grown human being. You mentioned Psalm 139. Uh, this is one of my favorite and go-to um, psalms on this particular subject, uh, uh, 139.13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So here you go, from the, from the mouth of, uh, from the pen of David, from the mouth of the Holy Spirit, uh, he's simply authenticating what, what you just said about the, the sanctity of life. And, and um, there are not more beautiful words than this. I mean, I, I was sharing this with a prisoner at the Oconee Jail, and he wept because of, a, uh, of an abortion uh, that he uh, paid for in years past. So. You will often hear the comment, Jesus never mentioned this. That's what Joe Scarborough said. Jesus, you know, he said, read the red letters, pick up the Bible, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus never addresses the issue of abortion. Now, you're going to hear that. Do you hear that, by the way? Have you heard people say things like Jesus never addressed oh, yeah. certain issue X, and then therefore he was okay with it is the implication? Now, let, let's, just, let's just try to answer that maybe uh, right now. Let's, let's talk about that. There's two avenues by which we respond to the accusation Jesus never mentioned, for instance, homosexuality, or Jesus never mentioned abortion by name or something like that. Two, two things we've got to remember. Number one is we don't believe in what people have called a canon within the canon. In other words, we don't believe that the red letters are really the Word of God and everything else, all the black letters, are not really God's Word. You know who inspired the entirety of Scripture? The triune God of the Bible, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So do you know who's behind Psalm 139? The Spirit of Jesus Christ inspired Psalm 139. You know who inspired Luke chapters 1 and 2? Remember a few months ago I preached on this. The, the Greek word brephe, the, the brephos, a word for an infant, a, a word for a little baby, a child, is used. Remember in Luke 1, for John the Baptist leaping, the baby, the brephos, leapt in his mother's womb, in, in uh, Elizabeth's womb, when he heard the, the voice of Mary come into the door. The word is brephos, right? John in the womb, he's six months in the womb, he jumps, leaps for joy, he's called a brephos. Uh, a couple of times. And then when Jesus is born in the very next chapter, what word, what Greek word does Luke use to describe Jesus in the Christmas story lying in the manger? You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in the manger. You know what the Greek word is? It's brephos. Wow. You know what that tells us? 
That tells us that Jesus, who inspired Luke, because we believe that Jesus is God, Jesus, by His Spirit, inspired Luke to use the same Greek term for an infant child, for a child in the womb, John the Baptist, and for Jesus outside the womb in the, in the manger. The same exact term is used. Why? Because they are both equally human. They are both equally infants. They are both equally children, and both are to be treated with the same kind of dignity and rights. Uh, Greg, thoughts on the Jesus-never-mentioned-it idea? Um, yeah, I'm... I remember Vody Balkum saying something about this a number of years ago, and it kind of spurred some thinking for me uh, because that's one I'd heard, and I was like, it didn't sit right, but as I was thinking through it, he kind of helped me crystallize on some things. Um, you know, when someone says Jesus never said anything like about homosexuality or abortion, what they are doing is already revealing what they believe about who Jesus is, that he's not really the son of God. You know, he's not the God of the Old Testament. He's not one and the same with him. Um, he, he's something else. Um, and that's how they can say that. Well, he's speaking almost in contradiction. Because if we understand that he is God, and therefore, if he's God, then that means every bit of Scripture that was inspired from Genesis to Malachi, not just the Father gave that, not just the Spirit gave that, the Son gave that as well. So everything that God says about all these practices and how evil they are Guess what? That's Jesus saying that just before he took human flesh. That's the Son of God inspiring the Word of God, testifying to these things. And so Jesus didn't have to specifically detail his position on a lot of these things. One, because he inspired the Scriptures that the whole conversation is based on. And number two, he affirmed it. Like he said, I did not come to abolish, to do away with the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. I didn't come to deny them, treat them as unimportant, treat them as no longer relevant. I came to bring to fulfillment everything that they were talking about and pointing to. And what did he say? And you mentioned this. Mm -hmm. Not one jot or tittle will perish until all has come to pass. And so the whole argument assumes, I think, that Jesus must not really be the God that he claims he is. He's not co-equal with the Father. He wasn't there at creation. He wasn't part of or he wasn't one of the members of the Trinity inspiring um, the giving of Scripture. It just completely misses the point. Building off that point, a couple more things to say. Number one, when Jesus quotes David's Psalms, Jesus says things like this, as the Spirit said through David. You know what that means about Psalm? Look, Psalm 139. Do you see there at the top? A Psalm of David. Jesus treats all the Psalms as God-given, God-inspired. And so he says, listen, when David is writing Psalms, it's the Spirit speaking through David. And so everything Psalm 139 says about the unborn, Jesus says is inspired by God. It's the Spirit speaking through David. So Jesus does affirm the life of the unborn because he affirms the Psalms as God's Word. And then you can move to another point of here. Jesus does actually condemn abortion explicitly when he says, you should not murder. Jesus mentions that over and over again. Let, let me quote a couple of textbooks here. I am not an expert on this, so I'm leaning on other people. This is off Princeton's website, but uh, a couple of old te- they have a whole list of quotations from many different embryology textbooks. Here's one from 1996, Human Embryology and Teratology. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Uh, here's what it says. Uh, Ronan O'Reilly and Fabiola Moeller write, although life is a continuous process, Fertilization is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new, genetically distinct human organism is thereby formed. The combination of 23 chromosomes present in each uh, pronucleus results in 46 chromosomes in the zygote. Thus, the number is restored and the embryonic genome is formed. The embryo now exists as a genetic unity. So from the moment of sperm and egg meeting and you have the zygote formed, you have the new genetic information. You have the full new genetic code for this human being. So guess what you have? Even though it might be absolutely tiny and at the very beginning of development, that is a fully human individual that we may not even know yet the, 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 the gender of, of, of the child at this point. But at that moment of, of, of development, the full genetic information is there and it begins to multiply. And, you know, as, as it goes, it travels down the fallopian tube. It, it, hopefully it, 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 it um, gets plants. into the uterine lining and plants and then it begins to develop more fully. But an important issue is does level of development determine personhood? And this is something you've mentioned, I think, Greg, before, yeah. but w- what do you say when people say, well, it's very early in development, therefore it's not as human as we are? Well, I mean, this, this argument only holds weight for someone who's pro-abortion um, because they've already decided they don't want this baby to be human and they want the right to do with this baby whatever they want, whether live or die. Um, because you apply the logic to any other other area of human existence, and there's no way they would ever use this logic to argue for anything. If you say, well, you're not human yet because you're not developed enough, 
Does that mean older people are more human than younger people? More mature people are more human than less mature people? Um, I mean, all right, for, for sake of argument here, Papa Fred's the most human person in this room right now. <laughs> that may be true. We're all less than human. <laughs> um, but then again, there's people older than him. And so it's like, where, where do you even begin to draw the line? It is completely arbitrary based on a, on a conclusion they've already reached, a, a, a position they are just determined to hold. So if we were to go in and, and say I'm having a discussion with a pro-abortion person who is 20, you know, they're in the college, they're getting exposed to this, they're getting radicalized and so passionate about being pro-choice um, and all of that. And I, I could literally look at them and say, well, guess what? I'm older than you. I'm more human than you. Therefore, I don't even have to give any validity to your argument. No, you can't do that. But they wouldn't allow that in any other context, how developed you are to determine how human you are. And yet that is the very thing they do when it comes to the issue of abortion. Why? Because they've already decided that, they should ha- that pe- women should have the right to kill the baby in the womb. Well, let me quote uh, another MSNBC host. I don't know what's happening here. I wasn't planning that, but here, here it is. Another MSNBC host, Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is what she said. Quote, when does life begin? I submit the answer depends an awful lot on the feelings of the parents. Now, just stop and think about what is being said there. This is not just some random person. It's a host on a major TV network. When does life begin? I submit the answer depends an awful lot on the feelings of the parents. She added, an unwanted pregnancy can be biologically the same as a wanted one, but the experience can be entirely different. Now, do you, do you see what's happening here? And we're going to be talking about this throughout all these weeks, I think. The idea is that our inward feelings are more important than objective reality. That is the world that we are now living in. How you feel about yourself is more important than objective facts about who you are. So if I feel like I am female, then whatever my biology says is insignificant compared to my inward life. Or if I feel like the child in my womb, a woman may say, the child in my womb, I feel like it's my child, I want to have this child, therefore that child has full dignity and rights as long as that woman feels that way. But as soon as the mother says, I no longer feel like carrying it to term, well now we have congressional funding to go put that baby to death under fluorescent lighting somewhere, you know? So, so is it, are we really going to say that the inward feelings of a person are more important than objective external reality that, that's all around us? Um, this has, comes from Bodie Bauckham, and, and he, um, I think what we're talking about, Mark and Greg, is, is the, the war of personal stories. It's almost like you were talking earlier about Twitter. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of what I think of Twitter sometimes. It's a, a war of personal stories, your opinion versus my opinion versus someone else's opinion. And, and he says we need to, he, and he has plenty of stories, and I'll share some of those. He's more intimately and aware of, of this issue than most men, I would say. Uh, but he goes back to Genesis. He goes back to um, creation. Uh, be fruitful, multiply, you know, have dominion. That's God created man and woman in his image. He created them. And then he says it's not good for a man to be alone, so I'm going to make him a helper suitable for him. And he creates a woman, and he says he gives her away. And he says, uh, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and then cleave to his bride, his wife. And God endorsed that. This is the first two chapters of the Bible, the beginning. And so he said, that's, that's the foundation there, not whether we think when does the, when's the fetal heartbeat begin or when, what stage of, of development is, is the embryo. It's what God endorsed from the beginning. Yeah, once we, once we remove the beginning of the biological life of the child from when it becomes a human person, Y'all have heard this, right? That it's alive, but it doesn't have personhood. That's the new way of talking in the last, I don't know how many years now. So it, yes, it's, I grant you, it's alive. I do have to stop the heartbeat here in, in medical procedures for of abortion. I've got to stop a heartbeat. It's alive, but it does not have personhood in the way that the mother or the father has personhood. Once you, once you do that, once you remove the objective fact of this is a human being, you remove it from personhood. Once you do that, then you have 
10,000 options for when you start life, and it becomes completely arbitrary. Is it when the brainstem forms? Is it when it can first recoil from pain? Is it when it can first experience dreams in the womb, which some people think you can experience? Is it when it first takes its first breath outside of the womb, which is an argument that some have made? Is it when? When do you? And it just becomes 10,000 different opinions. But scientifically, biblically, factually, when is this a new independent organism? Yes, it is dependent on the mother, but it is its own life at the very beginning of conception. And just to, to, if we're talking about different stories, this is a story of a woman who had been the victim of rape. It's a tragic story, but listen to what she says about her decision to have an abortion after she was tragically raped. I was raped a month before I turned 18. And because of that rape, I was so fearful and so shameful that I chose abortion out of fear. My rape was nothing compared to what I did to my child. What my rapist did to me does not compare what I chose to do to my baby. My rapist didn't kill me. I'm standing here alive right now. I have three beautiful children at home and a husband who loves me. But I chose to kill my child out of shame, out of guilt, out of fear because of what a man did to me. Rape is no excuse for abortion. I want to say that. They rape, and I'm not a victim anymore. I'm not a victim. I'm a survivor. I'm the mother of a child who I aborted, who is, thank the Lord, is in heaven. And because of Jesus Christ, I'll be with that child again. And I pray for my rapist every day that he comes to know Jesus. But I'm tired. As a person who was raped and a person who had abortion, I'm telling you right now, I'm tired of using rape as an excuse. Who do we believe creates life? Did my rapist create the life inside of me? No. God Almighty created that life. Do doctors, do doctors and nurses and petri dishes create life? No. Jesus Christ creates life. For years I lived in depression. I contemplated suicide, attempted suicide. I spent years drinking to numb the pain, to numb the horrific nightmares was later diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, not just because of the rape, but because of the abortion. I was done with my rape. I was trying to conceive how in the world did I choose to kill my child? How could I not be strong enough? Who was going to speak for me as an 18-year-old girl who didn't have a family to support her? No one did. That's what 26 is. We have got to speak up. It's not just about the babies. It's about the moms like me who think they're making a good decision and they're not. Just pausing there, um, obviously, when a girl is in a tragic situation like that, as, as the church, we need to come alongside and love that girl in an amazing way. If she wants the child to be put up for adoption, I mean, I, I just think, I, I've been in a room before in a church where this, one of the pastors got up and just said to a group of students, if you get pregnant and you do not want to keep the child, we will adopt your child. I, I never forgot that. You know, so, so just the local church should be the local church in the sense that when these difficult, unbelievably horrifying nightmare situations happen, the solution is not to add another evil to what has already happened. I've heard someone else say, and I may show this clip, uh, murder does not fix rape. It's not how this works. The, the, the church should come alongside and love those who are in desperate situations, and if necessary, reach out and adopt the children, if, if, if that is a possibility for couples who are able to do that, and to do all that we can to share the gospel with this girl if she doesn't know the Lord. And if she does know the Lord, then, 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 then to draw her in and love her well and to, to meet those needs. But so often, the, the idea of the quick fix of the abortion, getting rid of this, I mean, I, I've talked to a girl who had an abortion also at 18 years old. It was not from rape. She, she has said that to, to me and to others that it's the greatest regret of her entire life. That, that she was confused, she was still at the end of high school, she didn't want the public shame of being pregnant as a single girl in high school, so her parents encouraged her to get an abortion. I mean, I, I know who her parents are. They encouraged her to get an abortion, she got an abortion, and then, you know, over the next several years, she lived with unbelievable guilt and regret. She talked about it repeatedly over a period of months. I heard her speak of it numerous times because she hated what had been done to her, what she had chosen to do uh, to, to her child. So thoughts on the, on the compassionate side here for these tragic scenarios? I mean, church should care for people. Um, I mean, Society has done everything it can to pressure girls into this. Families do because they care more about their status than they do about what's right. Um, but, I mean, the church should be ready, willing. 
um, to do everything it can to care for people caught up in this. Um, young ladies, like I, you know, that, the one on the video, the one you mentioned, others, like the, the regret, the shame, the, the heartbreak over, over killing their child, um, you know, one, praise the Lord if they do feel bad about it, because there's one thing we looked at where a lady talked about having one, and she at least publicly expressed no regret and was right. celebrating it. Right. And that's what the push today is, is to try to remove the stigma and the shame of it. That this Shout is a, your abortion was a hashtag that went around a yeah. few years ago. And so, one, if there is guilt and remorse over it, you know, that's, that's a good sign um, that they know that what they did was wrong. And, you know, the church should come in. We come in preaching the gospel, saying, yeah, we're going to call sin for what it is, but we're also going to present Jesus for who he is. There, I mean, and here's the thing. And, and I've heard this from people in other circumstances. They say, well, you know, I don't see how Jesus can forgive me. He doesn't know what I've done. No, Jesus can forgive any and every sin. Okay, any and every sin is forgivable by Jesus. Um, and so we have to be ready to stress that to young women who have gone through this and maybe their boyfriends who encouraged it. Listen, it was evil. It was wrong. It was sin. And if somebody has, you know, gone through an abortion, they need to confess that as sin. If you've encouraged someone to get an abortion, you need to confess that as sin. But here's the good news. There's complete and total forgiveness in Jesus yes. for that. Yes. Like, we need to hear that. Um, like, there, this isn't that sin that's unforgivable. Um, and the church should be ready to bring first the hope of the gospel, but also all the resources that we can to, um, to help care for, for someone who has done this, um, to who's, who's had an abortion, to love them, to care for them, to, to help provide for them depending on their situation, um, and, and, you know, just totally destroy, you know, any semblance of doubt that God's people care about people who are hurting. Let, let me, this, this may surprise you. This clip surprised me. I'm not doing it to be overly critical. I just want us to be clear on this. This is from 1988. This is Larry King Live with Billy Graham on. This is January of 1988. I have to tell you, I did not expect, and I don't agree with what Billy Graham says right here on national television on the question of abortion in, in the cause of rape or incest. L listen to this surprising answer. Abortion from violent rape. Yes, I, w I would be uh, for abortion in violent rape. I'm against abortion. I take the same stand that the Pope takes. I'm against abortion, except in cases of rape and in cases and uh, violent rape, I would say. Okay. That is horribly wrong. I don't know if you knew that was Billy Graham's position, but that, that is horribly wrong. Uh, here's the deal. The question is the same question from the beginning. The question is, what is the unborn? If the unborn is a human being, which Billy Graham would agree 99% of the time that it's a human being, does it suddenly become less than human in the case of how it was conceived? Does the crime of the father change the nature of the child? That doesn't make any sense. And so, again here, I, I've heard other people say, listen, there, there are, I, I'll, in, in class sometimes I'll draw, you know, on the board, I'll put the, I'll put the, the, the rapist and I'll put the mother here and I'll put the, the child. And I'll, okay, class, act like you're in second grade. How many parties, how many individuals are involved in this scenario? Three. Rapist, the victim, and the child. There are three parties involved. If any of these three were to be torn limb from limb, who should it be? If it's going to be one of them, who should it be? Not the child. The child's done nothing wrong. Not the mother. She's the victim. If anyone's going to receive severe punishment, it should be the father, right? Not the child. So I'm not, I'm not recommending capital punishment for rape. That's a whole other discussion. I'm simply saying, if we're going to kill one of those three, don't let it be the child who did nothing. Let it be the, the, the father. He should be the one receiving the full consequences. So I profoundly disagree with this statement from Billy Graham. Thoughts on that? Uh, I mentioned earlier, Vody, uh, he has some He's been working in this area for 20 years, uh, uh, pro-life area. They had, he and his wife have nine children, I think now. Um, he may have even added another one. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a really quick story. They, they had a tubal ligation after their second child and both regretted it. They tried to reverse it. They could not. They repented of that to each other and to the Lord. Then they walk into the adoption center. They're a black couple now. They walk into adoption center and said, uh, how can I help you? Well, we would like two, three, four, 
or five children. And the lady gets up and runs out of the room. She comes back with the director. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he says, could you repeat that? Two, three, four. Anyway, they, the first two children, they've, they've adopted the rest of their family. The first two children, the first one was a product of rape. Uh, the, the second one was a product of incest. And, and he said, we couldn't love those children any more. Well, let, let me read here just a, a testimony from a woman online named Nancy Joy. I don't know anything about her, but this is her story. It got shared quite a bit on, online. She said, 28 years ago, I went to get an abortion. I didn't want to, but, I, but fear lied to me and I believed it. I was sitting in my surgical gown in the waiting room and asked God to show me what to do. I asked him to help me. I was then escorted back to the procedure room. I stood in the doorway crying. God moved in the heart of the manager, and she said to me, I don't think you're ready for this. I agreed, got dressed, and walked out, only to encounter pro-lifers out on either side of the sidewalk, silently praying. I walked about halfway down the sidewalk before I looked up, and I said, I didn't do it. And they erupted into praise to the Lord for answering their prayers. I've always wanted to thank them. So if you were reading this and you were there in Chicago, thank you. And so today, as this battle is raging, I want to encourage you to keep praying. It saved the life of my oldest daughter, and she is amazing. And then she has a picture here of the wow. girl that she came back. She was in her surgical ground about to abort her, and she walked out, pro-lifers out there praying for her, and she said, now I have the joy of my life. My, my oldest daughter is alive because I did not make that horrible decision when I was confused and young and did not really know what I was, what I was doing. Um, I want to put some more foundation under this about why this is, is such an important issue. Um, this isn't something that you can just have a nice political disagreement over. Um, when it comes to the value of human life and the murder, the, the, the killing of an innocent human being, um, that's not something you just agree to disagree on. Um, you know, we talked about Genesis 9. I mean, God is the one who instituted capital punishment for murder. Um, but let's put some further foundation under this, because one of the things so many people, um, at least part of their, the, the thinking of those who are pro-abortion, um, is I think they, even if they think they have God in the equation, they almost act like God's not a part of the conception of a baby and the growing of a baby um, this is why I think Psalm 139 is so important. If we're going to think rightly, um, conception, development, and birth is both a divine and human act. Like, it's not just two people doing it. God is involved in the process as well. And we know this from all the way back um, in Genesis chapter 4. Um, this struck me. I remember this. Um, it says, this is after Adam and Eve been kicked out of the garden, Cain's the first child born to them says she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She knew physically what her and Adam had to do for Cain to be there, but she also understood that every child was a gift from God. And so you take that mindset. God, man has his role in this, and God is also at work. And you go back to Psalm 139 when it says, verse 13, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So we need to, yes, abortion is murder, and that in and of itself should be enough. But let's, let's put even more weight to this. Abortion is an all-out assault on the creative act of God in bringing another human being into the world. It is nothing less than that. It is one of the most evil things human beings have ever done. Every single time it happens, humanity is attacking the work of God in bringing another image of God into the world. It should make us sick. It should be revolting. We should have a response that's not just intellectual. It should move us. So this isn't a nice political discussion. Like it goes, be, yes, politics get involved with it, but it is so much more than that. It is so much more than that. And the fact that so many people are okay with this, that they endorse it, they promote it, um, it goes to show how far gone they are 
um, in their consciences that they would even think that something like that is even remotely okay. And, and you know, Scripture, 1 Timothy tells us to pray for our political leaders at the time, the king and those kinds of things, governors. I was going online to look up information about this very issue this weekend, and this tweet was given on Friday from our current president. This is Joe Biden on Friday. If you give me two more Democratic senators and Democrats keep the House, I promise you we will codify Roe v. Wade. We will once again make Roe the law of the land. We will once again protect a woman's right to choose. So it, one of the things we should be praying for in terms of our current situation is praying that things like this do not happen, that, that Roe v. Wade does not get codified into law, uh, where, where, where we are able actually to, with these ama amazing advancements in the pro-life movement. I mean, I, I've been tracking online every time a state just shuts the doors on all the Planned Parenthoods and all the, all, all the abortion clinics are shut down. And you, you track each state. I just got news of another state a few days ago. Just at, state after state is closing the doors on these things. I know that that means places like California and New York are going to be skyrocketing in terms of people going there to get abortions. But it has been unbelievable to see the, the pro-life move. And we need to pray that things like this do not happen, that, that the Lord keep this from happening, and that He not give us really what we deserve, which is that these, you know, really, we get what we deserve in some sense on these things, right? What, what, what our country wants is what we get. And so pray that we not want that and that we not get that, 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 our, that our country as a whole would turn from this and that there would be a revival of the true Christian faith, that people would see the truth of the gospel and turn away from these things and see them for what they, what they are. I mean, it, it, made me, it made me tear up multiple times researching this. I watched non-Christian news Vice News online, not Christian at all, super liberal. I watched a 45-minute documentary over the weekend that they just did over the summer uh, about Roe v. Wade being overturned. And the whole point of the documentary was to make you feel all the wrong things about abortion, right? They're trying to make you sympathetic toward abortion by giving you all these stories of tragedies. And I watched it, and I, was, I teared up not just over tragic stories that are worthy of tears, but because people are presenting as the answer being killing the unborn. That's the compassionate thing to do. No, it is not. I, I, was just, I was just like, Lord, open the eyes so that people can see that what this actually is. Uh, th this is not compassionate, nor is it merciful. Uh, it, it is not, you know, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, she has the famous quote, the most merciful thing a large family can do for a new child in the womb is to kill it. The most merciful thing you can do is to kill the unborn child because you might be bringing it into a life of poverty. And once again, the question is, what is the unborn? If the unborn is a human being, which I believe scientifically and biblically it is, it is indisputably true that the unborn are human, then what possible reason can you give for intentionally killing the life of the unborn? Now, again, let me stop here. Your, your wife's a nurse. She would be way more equipped to talk about this than, than I am. But, but based on what I know, and I, I can quote some people on this, again, a, a, a doctor or a nurse would, would know far more about the, the details of this. But one thing that comes up a lot is something called ectopic pregnancies. Okay, where, where you have the, 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 uh, the zygote there, there's a conceived embryo, and it's traveling down the fallopian tube, and it gets stuck, and it does not make it to the uterine wall, and the baby begins to develop in the fallopian tube. Now, I don't know any pro-life person who knows what they're talking about who would disagree with the idea of doing a life-saving surgery in that situation. Now, let, let me try to be as clear as I can on this. In ectopic pregnancies, if the baby is allowed to continue growing in the fallopian tube, both the baby will die and the mother will die. She will have a rupture, and she will... She will die. There's, there's, there's no way. Can, can the baby be re-implanted on the uterine wall? From what I've read, no, that's not a possibility. That's what I've read. If there is a possibility, I would love to know about that. But in ectopic pregnancies, this is not an abortion procedure. This is why we have to define our terms very carefully. Abortion is, Scott Klusendorf is so good, abortion is the intentional killing of the innocent unborn child. The, the goal of the surgery is to kill the child. That's abortion. In an ectopic pregnancy, every pro-life person I know would be in favor of a woman performing a life-saving surgery that will have the undesired but foreseen consequence of the baby not surviving. But the goal of an ectopic pregnancy surgery to save the mother's life is not intended to kill the child. That's not abortion. You see the difference here? The, the definitions matter. An abortion is the intentional killing of the unborn. In an ectopic pregnancy, you're not trying to kill the baby. You're trying to save the mother's life. And since both are going to die if you do nothing, you have to do something. And so to save the mother's life, the child will not survive, but the child won't survive either way. And the goal is not the death of the child. It's the saving of the life of the mother. So I don't know anyone who's against those kinds of procedures in the pro-life movement, but people will today tell you that we think that that is abortion and that should be made illegal. 
I don't know anyone worth their salt in the pro-life movement who's making that argument. I don't know anyone who is saying that. So there's a lot of caricatures and misinformation being thrown out right now against our position to try to make us look like we don't even have, you know, any, any understanding of at all the, the kinds of things that are going on in these circumstances. Yeah, I mean, and I think this is one of the things, it's, it's a reality check for us. Um, at least as a new believer, you kind of get, I, I was naive in thinking, man, if I just present the right evidence and argument, people are going to, oh, wow, yeah, I see what you're talking about. I'll, I'll change my position. We, we have to keep in mind the deceitfulness of sin and the propensity of the human heart to love what is evil over what is good. Um, I mean, immediately when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't own their sin. They made fig leaves. They hid. God says, you know, what, what happened? Adam's like, well, it's the woman's fault. And Eve's like, well, it's the serpent's fault. I mean, like, we, we deflect uh, responsibility, we deflect from the truth so quickly, and it's only gotten worse as humanity has gone on. Like, we have, de- um, you know, we talk about progress, but in reality, we've regressed or, you know, made the opposite of progress. The world thinks we're going up, we're actually going down to the point where, um, you know, we, we look at something like abortion and, and we, we think it's okay. Um, and we think we're doing a good thing. We think this is an honorable thing. Um, and we, we are just so utterly confused. Oh, but the point of that was, don't be surprised and undone when people don't believe the facts, even when you give them the facts. Because, again, they love their sin too much. This is where, in essence, we, we pray God open their eyes to see what they're blind to. I mean, you really cannot expect a blind person to understand colors or a deaf person to appreciate sound. Um, and so like we have to present evidence, present arguments, present facts, but understand human sinfulness. They're not just going to, Oh yeah, you're right. I was wrong. I'm going to change this now. I repent. Forgive me. Like that's not how it works. Uh, so many times, whether sharing the gospel, whether, um, whether trying to convince somebody on an issue like this, I, all the facts are there. Like it's their, their point has been refuted but they won't budge from it because they love a lie more than they love the truth. They love their sin more than they love God. And they love the dark more than they love the light. I mean, what does John say? I mean, we know this in John 3, after our very famous, um, you know, John 3, 16, Jesus says that this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people just weren't persuaded that the light was better if they'd only had good arguments? It says, no, they loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. And the point of that is, is in our sin, man loves his sin more than he loves God. He loves his evil more than he loves what is good. And so when we're presenting the facts, we have to be ready to present the same facts, maybe five times, maybe 10 times, maybe 15 times, maybe a hundred times before finally the, the light starts to dawn on folks and they realize, oh, wait a minute. I actually am being inconsistent. I actually, this actually is wrong. Um, so don't, don't let it overwhelm you and you're like, oh, they didn't receive it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I didn't present. People are going to hate the truth even when it's pre- clearly presented. So don't let that throw you off if people don't receive it, just point it out and say, listen, your response has nothing to do with objective reality. You're just preferring your position, even when I've shown you that it's wrong. Tell them that. Help them see that as much as you can. Just think about this. God chose the birth process to bring the light into the world. Uh, Granted, it wasn't your normal pregnancy, but it was a divine pregnancy. But a human mother birthed Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And that's almost an endorsement of the process itself, which he announced in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. So, um, wow, that really adds some gravity to this whole process issue. Uh, again, we've got a few minutes left. We're coming close to the end. Uh, Again, I know, I know we're, we're saying a lot of critical things in this series, and that's just the way we have to approach this. Here's another criticism I want to make of a very well-known pastor in Atlanta. This is Andy Stanley. And uh, listen to his comments about why, what his thoughts about abortion and, and whether he should preach on the topic. An example is abortion. Um, I've never preached a sermon on abortion, and I've never preached against abortion. However, 
because abortion is a topic like several others that is better handled in a circle than a row. Now, if you follow us, you know, one of our taglines, because we are groups crazy at our churches, circles are better than rows, circles are better than rows, circles are better than rows. Abortion, and there are several others, is an issue. So my goal as a pastor would be to get every single woman who's contemplating, every single teenager, every single woman who's dealing with the aftermath and, and the guilt of an abortion in a circle. But in terms of when I have a room full of people that I do not know, that's a topic that I would rather move women or boyfriends into an environment where they can talk about it. And we've had... Okay. Now, he, he said the same thing about homosexuality as well on another occasion. I've heard him say, you should never address homosexuality from the pulpit because circles are better than rows. It's better dealt with in a small group than from the pulpit. Um, profoundly disagree with him. I'm trying to restrain my emotions right now, if you can't tell. I start shaking when he says things like that. It, that is such... Okay, hang on. Hold on to myself. I'm smiling now. Okay. That's not the way to do things. What would you have done in 1859, right before the Civil War? Don't address slavery from the pulpit because, you know, half the people in your room own slaves. It's better dealt in circles rather than rows. Don't preach on that prophetically. You'll turn people off to the gospel before they even hear the gospel. I mean, you can't talk about anything that really is of consequence in our society if you're afraid of offending people. If you're afraid of saying something in such a way that they're going to go, well, I, uh, I knew you'd say that. Oh, come on. And they, they walk out of the room. No, listen, you say it with compassion. You say it with the gospel. You say it with the availability of forgiveness on the table, but you don't ignore it and you don't minimize it and you don't leave it for small groups. If the pulpit is going to be silent, the pews will be silent on these issues. I'm telling you, uh, it's going to create more confusion. It's not going to help. And so I know this is the most popular approach and I know that there are a lot of reasons he gives for why he does it this way. But I think it is a dereliction of duty. I think it's a failure of duty as a pastor to be silent on the critical issues of your day, to say, I'm not going to address it from the pulpit. I won't address homosexuality from the pulpit. That's either, well, I'll stop there. Greg, thoughts on that? Um, that's just unbiblical. Um, the prophets didn't preach in circles. They preached in rows, as he says it. John the Baptist didn't preach in circles, he preached in rows. Jesus didn't preach in circles, he preached like every single instance of biblical proclamation of an important issue is not, well, let's just huddle in our circles and talk about it. They kept it public for a reason. Like, and so I appreciate that he cares about the life of the unborn. Like, praise the Lord that he does, that he's not on the other side of the issue. But you're right, it is a dereliction of duty. Um, we're not told to, to have these huddles where we just, do we need to talk about it in smaller groups? Yes. Do we need to have opportunities for people who are involved, who, who are struggling with the issue? Yes. But does that mean the pulpit's silent? No. Um, I mean, our Lord himself, like so much of his ministry was public. Um, and he didn't shy away from offending the people who everybody would say, well, you shouldn't offend them. I mean, he, 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 got himself he had his for the strongest that he words for the people that they would say, well, you can't do that, Jesus, because you're going to offend them. The people that everyone would say don't offend are the people he had his harshest words for. And so if we're going to be anything like Jesus in our preaching and teaching, then we need to, to be public on the issues that matter publicly. And let, let me just add a, a note here. So the Sunday after Roe was overturned, uh, let, let me just quote this. This is from the, the, the Wall Street Journal. This is June of 2022. Uh, this is Andy Stanley on the Sunday after Roe was overturned. This is what Andy said apparently from his pulpit, quote, for many in our country who've been fighting for this for so long, this felt like a huge win, the overturning of Roe, said Pastor Andy Stanley at North Point Community Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, quote, but for others in our, in our country, this felt like a gut punch, the overturning of Roe. These are the cultural moments. Now, listen, this sentence is not helpful. These are the cultural moments where the church has an opportunity to shine even when we don't necessarily agree. So he's assuming within his church, that would be where Christians are, they're going to disagree on whether overturning Roe was good or bad, and the way we shine is by maintaining our unity despite disagreeing about the goodness or the badness of Roe being overturned. I'm sorry, if you, if you are only upset about Roe being overturned, I'm, I'm going to ask some serious questions about where, where things are. So then he, he continues, uh, the, the uh, the, the article continues. This is not Andy Stanley. The, the article says, Mr. Stanley told parishioners he had strong personal feelings about the issue, but did not discuss what they were. 
That's how he responded to the overturning of Roe at his church. And, and my, my goal isn't just simply to throw rocks at him, but he is so popular and prominent in our, in our state and in our country. Uh, we just have to say that's not the way to go on this one. That, that silence on this is going to create confusion in the pews, not clarification, and it's going to create a kind of false unity that ignores central moral issues of our time. Uh, and, and it's not the way we can go. We're over this time. Is, this Papa is a friend. spiritual conflict, not a political conflict. It, right. It's, it, this is a moral issue it's a moral, before it is any kind of political spiritual, issue. spiritual, biblical issue. All right. Let, we need to wrap up for the sake of time. Let me pray for us, and then we will, we will uh, move on to the service. Heavenly Father, there, there are so many, uh, even in churches, who, who don't want to be clear on some of these important issues, God. We, we know that we're not going to win popularity points by, by speaking to some of these issues, at least not with, with many. And God, our goal is not to be contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. It's not just simply because we, we want to start some sort, of, uh, some sort of fight of some kind. But God, we do believe that the issue of our day, the, the, the big issue of our culture right now is the issue of the unborn, along with the sexual revolution and a, a lot of these other things that go with it. And God, I pray that we would stand with love and compassion for the unborn and with love and compassion for mothers, uh, particularly those who are victims of horrific crimes like rape, uh, but, but any mother who, who is in, these di- in a difficult situation financially or economically who is pregnant and maybe the husband is not there or the boyfriend has walked away. God, I pray that we could be uh, a church that would be able to love those in those situations and to care for children who uh, are put up for adoption or who are put into the foster care system or things of that nature, God. And I thank you for the many couples in our church who have uh, done things of that nature and, and care about those kinds of things, God. And I thank you that our church has been able to uh, contribute some to the, to the Athens Pregnancy Center. And thank you for the great work that they do here in town. And I do pray that you would allow them to continue to minister well to uh, hurting couples and uh, women in in difficult situations, God, but I pray we would not back down from what is true. It is not loving to sacrifice the truth, and we need to do it with grace and with humility and love, but we need to do it with clarity and conviction as well, and I pray our church would be a church that stands for life and for the unborn and those who have been born, of course, as well, but particularly the unborn as they are the ones who are most targeted in this particular situation, God. So I pray the gospel would be big, that those who've had abortions would find grace and forgiveness in the repentance that comes in Christ. And I pray we could love others well. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we will do at least one more week on this topic, and then we will move to the transgender issue after that.